Amen. You can actually be seated. Wanted to just take a minute and uh, continue to set the context for what it is that we want to do this morning, where we believe God is calling us to, to look and to see. We're in this missions we've talked about this week as being uh, a focus on our city and, and learning to, to love our city, learning to see it as Jesus sees it. Uh, seeing is one of the most significant things that, that Jesus does in the Gospels. I don't know if you've ever done a study and gone through and talked about or just underlined how often Jesus sees things. Even in that parable, the Good Samaritan, he talks about you know, people being able to see uh, the broken one. There's a story in Luke chapter 7. It's the story of a, a widow from Nain. Some of you are familiar with that story. If not, you can go back and look at it later. Uh, but in that culture, you know, funerals were a big deal. Usually the whole town would, uh, you know, turn out for a funeral. And so there was a funeral procession leaving Nain right at the same time. And that was with a considerable crowd, probably three to 400 people. Uh, at the same time that Jesus was coming into Nain with a great multitude, uh, probably one to 2,000 people, and they kind of run into each other at the same time. So a lot of commotion. Jesus has got people following him. But what's so striking about this story is how in the midst of these hundreds of people, Jesus is able to see this one widow, and he is able to enter into her story uh, in such a way that he brings her life and restoration. Here, here's the text from Luke 7. It says, as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Literally, his heart went out to her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he goes and he touches the beer, the coffin. This was a no-no in those days to associate with a dead body. And he raises the son to, his, to life and he gives the son back to the mother. Why do I say this? I say this for a couple of reasons. The first is this. Uh, seeing is the first part to ministry. We, we cannot minister if we do not see. And one of the reasons why we've invited Justin here, and I'll introduce him more fully uh, in a moment, is that uh, he is a practitioner here in the city, and I believe he can help us see, uh, perhaps with different eyes than we normally see. The other thing to notice from this text is that the gospel is holistic. You know, Jesus addresses this woman's physical need. I mean, her need at that time was she was now a widow without any man in her life. She had no social security. She had no government aid. She was part of the living dead. And Jesus meets her in that desert, as it were, and brings her back to life. But he does it 
at the same time as addressing her spiritual need. Because when he touches that coffin, when he touches that beer, he says, I'm going to death. I am willing to associate myself with death. I am willing to become unclean in order that you might be clean. And that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus' work on the cross becoming unclean for us in order to give us back life, both spiritually and in this case with this woman, figuratively. As I've said, we have Dr. Justin Bean with us uh, this morning. Justin has become a friend of mine, I would say, over the years, or over this last year. Uh, he uh, was the leader through the Grand Rapids Center for Community Transformation, of which he is the founding director uh, of a program or an initiative uh, that I took part in called uh, Loving Our City into Greatness with uh, other city leaders, pastors, and others thinking about, praying about, how do we see and love our city? He's a graduate of uh, the Baki Graduate Institute. Ray Baki has long been a champion among Christians for thinking about and loving our city. Justin has his uh, doctorate in transformative leadership in the global city. Uh, he has a wife, Carrie Ann. Uh, he has two kids, Jelani and Cheyenne. They're five and two, respectively. They were here at the first service. He's a member at uh, Tabernacle Community Church, and these folks are uh, good friends of ours just in the, practically the same neighborhood. Uh, their two pastors are both good friends of mine, Kizombo and Artie. I uh, appreciate them, and I appreciate Justin. And so it's a joy to invite him to come and to open up to us uh, a portion of John 9, which was some of the basis for his doctoral work. I'm going to read that for us right now and then invite Justin to come and to help us see. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is Jesus. Uh, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day, for night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, then anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed, and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but, but he's like him. But he kept saying, No, I, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And then skipping over to verse 24, Justin will be commenting on the whole text. So if you have it open, keep it open. But we're just going to read this. For the second time, they called the man, they being the Pharisees. They wanted to examine this. Happened on the Sabbath day. Can't be making mud on the Sabbath day. And so they're trying to figure out, you know, what manner of man Jesus is that he would heal on the Sabbath day. 
So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. But he, the man, answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he, this man, answered them and said, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciple? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Thus far in the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Father, as we uh, approach this word, we ask that you would uh, approach our hearts, that you would open the eyes, both our physical eyes and the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the world through your eyes. Lord, we are grateful that you've gone before us and you've given us not only an example, uh, but you've actually transformed us to be able to see in this way. And so, Lord, we pray that in that confidence, uh, you would meet us this morning. We do pray for Justin, this one who will bring God's word to us. Lord, we ask that you would fill him powerfully with your spirit, and we pray that you would uh, strengthen him for the task that you have laid before him this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Brother, welcome. Open the word for us. Well, good morning. As Andrew mentioned, I took a group of about uh, uh, 20 leaders or so over about a year and a half period through a series we called uh, Loving Our City into Greatness. And um, part of it is this idea that we believe cities are healed relationally. It's kind of like, have you ever seen someone who really loves a thing, like a car? Well, they have an emotional connection to the car. They take care of the car. They wash the car. They take care of it like it was a baby, and they brag about it. Well, just like people, things over time begin to bear the mark of the one who loves it. G.K. Chesterton said, Rome wasn't always great. People first loved Rome, and then it became great. But it wasn't always like that for me. I've been on this journey of trying to figure out how do I love my city? Because I haven't always loved my city. I grew up outside of uh, the Baxter neighborhood as a poor kid on food stamps, African-American father who never graduated from high school. But he married a rich, more affluent white woman who came from uh, Grand Rapids Christian Schools and had an entrepreneurial father. And so they put me in private schools. So I got to experience two different worlds 
of our city of Grand Rapids. One in which there was poverty and crime, in which our cars were stolen, my bikes were stolen, my house was regularly broken into, and then I got to go be with friends and be on yachts and experience the good things. How do you love your city when I don't even like it? Well, about six years ago, I got an opportunity to go and live in Guatemala City for six years or six months. Um, and when I first got there, got to the airport, you come out of the, the, the airport, you go outside, and there's hundreds of people who are oftentimes standing outside. And many of them have come from all over the hill country and the mountains. Uh, there's 29 different languages in Guatemala, different cultures, people wearing different colors that represent their indigenous culture. You're really overwhelmed. It's a really disorienting experience. My friend takes me, we get into his car, planes landing and taking off, again, very disoriented. He rolls down the window, the smog hits me, and all I know is what I knew, what I had read about the city, right? There's 4.5 million people there, over 75% of people live in poverty, that there's over 430 gangs there, that it's one of the most uh, dangerous cities in the world, next to Tegucigalpa or El Salvador. He takes a deep breath. He says, ah, I love this city. It was the first time I heard someone talk like that. Like I knew he knew the difficult parts of the city. He had been there for 14 years. He knew the challenges. He knew the violence. But he also knew the heart of the city. He knew the people of the city. He knew the hope of the city. As I look at my journey and I look at, as I've come to try to read scripture in a way that has to speak to those things, I got some crazy stories about experiences I've had in Guatemala. I had to have a scripture that would speak to those things, to those places where there's the rich and the poor, the folks who are discriminated against and the people who benefit from those. But when I look at the story of Jesus, when I look at the narrative, I see that Jesus as well deeply cared about two things. And he wept over these two things. We found it in scripture. One is the dead body of Lazarus. And two is over the condition of the city of Jerusalem. I believe that personally and as the body of Christ, we are called to care about two things, people, but as well as the places in which they live. So my message today I'm calling the urban mission of the church, or perhaps in question form, what is the church's mission in the city, and what should we be doing? So I'm still in the, what I call the prolegomena, I'm still in the pretext, there's still a little bit more stuff I got to say before I say what I want to say, okay? One is, and this begins to get into your notes, is that the world is urbanizing. In 1901, less than 1% of the world's population lived in urban areas. Today, that number is at 55% of the population lives in urban areas. In the next 32 years, by the year 2050, some statistics projections are saying 70% of the world will live in urban areas. To give you an idea, that's 3 million people every single week moving into urban areas. That means Detroit in its heyday, we have to build three of those every single week. 100% of the 
of the world's population growth over the next 32 years, that's an increase of 2.3 billion people, will 100% be absorbed by cities. Here's the second part to point number one. But this is God's plan. When we look at scripture, when we look at it as a meta-narrative, as a big story, it starts in Genesis, in a garden. But when we look at Revelation, the narrative has moved from a garden and it's become a megacity. The new Jerusalem coming to the earth where every nation and every tribe and every tongue is present, worshiping our Savior together. The world is urbanizing and this is God's plan. So that really leads me to this scripture. Overall, the idea is Jesus heals the blind man at the pool of Siloam. The Pharisees are investigating it. Like Andrew said, he can't make mud on Sunday. Um, they're asking who sinned that, that he's blind. And then Jesus begins to talk also about spiritual blindness. So there's two contextual points here. One is the location of this. A couple years ago, I got a chance to go to the pool of Siloam in, in Jerusalem. Uh, they uncovered it. And it's right outside the old city walls of Jerusalem, right outside uh, below the city of David. I believe this was a place of ceremonial washing. This is a place where teachers of the law would have been. Um, there was lots of coming and going at the time from this place. So there, was, there would have been a lot of activity. So it's not by default that Jesus decides to go to a place where lots of people are. Lots of people who represent religion and law and economics and do a miracle like this. Number two is the passage is significant because it's the first time in the Bible that we hear about a miracle story in which someone was inflicted with an ailment from birth. So the Jews would have taught that someone had to sin for him to be blind. Again, even Jesus' disciples weren't beyond asking the question. They say, well, Jesus, who sinned that he's blind? Because of that, this blind man would have had to deal with a bunch of ridicule and ostracism. That despite there's all these people, he would have been void of mutual relationship. Because, of course, his blindness was a just punishment for his sin. So what do you say, Justin? What is the mission of the church in the city? Is it to heal the blind? Isn't it to make disciples of every nation? Well, I'm glad you asked. And my answer to that would be no. And this is number two. The church's mission is not to bring salvation to the city. In fact, the work of Jesus is already complete. The kingdom of God is here. It is now, Jesus has said over and over. One of the books that I read is this book called, uh, by Dr. Robert Lithicum, City of God, City of Satan. And he says, the church isn't supposed to be the victorious, triumphant savior, as we often thought. For one has already come and paid the ultimate price for his people. And here's part of the lie that the church has believed that we are, in fact, the answer. And it's not that the church is the answer. It's that we ought to point people to Jesus himself. He is the answer. In that way, perhaps the testimony of the man is the testimony for us the church and the urban center, that I once was blind, but now I see. 
Lithicum shares it this way. He says, the healing is considered one of the most pivotal miracle stories in the Bible, precisely because the apostolic church recognized that in a very profound way, this man's words somehow encapsulated the entire testimony of what God had done for the whole church. Christians preserve this story not only because it displayed Christ's power and compassion, but because it also testified to what Christ had done for us all, that we had been blind, and with the touch of the master's hand, now we can see. So a few questions for us to think about in light of our city, in light of the way we see our city. What if you've been taught about our city? What have you been taught about the spiritual condition of our city or the social condition of our city? And what are the causes of both the beauty and the pain? What might you be blind to? Well, I often hear people say that they love Grand Rapids. And in many ways, Grand Rapids has some beautiful things to love. It's the number one best place to raise children, best place to retire. 2016, best place to invest in real estate. Some of the top schools in the state and in the country. There's almost 1,000 churches, almost 3,000 nonprofits. It's been ranked one of the top most philanthropic communities in the country. Beer City, USA. Art Prize has made it artistic boom place. Uh, number four smartest cities. I could go on. But there's some areas that I think perhaps we're blind to, and these are the places, these places of pain that oftentimes the church neglects. And these are the places I believe God is calling us into to go and shed light. Things like, and many people don't know this, that actually the zip code that I work in, 49507, that the lead rate of children is two times higher of that of those in Flint. It's not from water, it's from lead-based paint that children are eating off of old homes. Unemployment is at 25% in urban neighborhoods, despite a rate overall in the city at 3%. Only half of students in the Grand Rapids Public School District are graduating on time. It is getting better. Over one-third of African-American families live in poverty, making household income less than $26,000 compared to their counterpart. White households at 52,000. And here's point number three. Recently, Forbes did a study. They looked at 52 metropolitan areas. They looked at economics. So this was home ownership, business ownership, and median income and found Grand Rapids to be the second worst place in the country for African-Americans to live. So how do we get a new perspective on our city? How do we ask Jesus to radically transform our vision? And that's point number four. He does radically transform our vision. Jesus does radically transform our vision. And we see that in the individual. When we look at John 9, we see clearly that he radically transforms the vision of the blind man. But I think the second two pieces are more important, that he also transforms the vision of the role of law, of the Pharisees and what they had taught. It's also point, uh, or kind of sub-point is, is the systems, the systems that had perpetuated the fact that we could make a judgment of the condition of the other. 
that it must have been someone's sin. When I read those statistics, pay attention to what surfaces for you. Is it that black people are lazy? Is it that the public school system just can't figure it out? It's just their fault? The principalities and the powers and the systems, they too have fallen victim to Satan's blinding lies. I think when it comes to cities, one of the things that makes it difficult for us to engage and to see is that we've been stuck in what I call a garden theology. We're still stuck in Genesis. We're still longing for the day when we can walk in the cool of the day with our father. And it's not that that's bad. It's that after the fall, there was a new trajectory. And the new trajectory became one that was urban. It was one that was global. It was one that needed different people of different languages. It was the opposite of the Tower of Babel. The world is coming to the cities. I call this, this is the urban Pentecost because if you reach the cities, it's what Ray Baki says, if you reach the cities for the kingdom, then you reach the world. How do we admit that the systems have become evil? Yes, our political, our economic, even our religious systems have been bamboozled. Not just in Jerusalem in the day, but also in Grand Rapids. And that has created all kinds of urban problems. So for me, I have to begin to read the text from an urban lens. It's interesting that actually the Bible is one of the few historical books that teaches us from and it gives the perspective of those who have been oppressed and victimized. That's powerful. That Jesus himself was a political refugee and all his power and might wraps himself in flesh, says he had nowhere to lay his head, right? We know Herod was trying to kill him. He has to flee because of persecution. He was Asian born, Middle Easterner. Think about how he identified with those. Joseph Campbell says, if we want to change the world, then we have to change the metaphor. Or Stanley Hauerwas says, we can only act in the world in which we see. So there's three metaphors that have been helpful for me to see the city differently. And these are in your notes. One is seeing the city as classrooms. For far too long, we've been taught that our way of engaging the city should be to go and teach them. If the problem is economics, well, we should go teach them financial literacy. If the problem is education, we'll go train better teachers. But what about seeing the city as a classroom? Do we actually believe that the Spirit of God precedes us in everything? That he's everywhere? That there's nowhere that we can escape the presence of God? If, if the Holy Spirit is in the city, then can we go to the city and learn from it? And not try to teach it or save it. It means that we cultivate an open and inquisitive learning posture. One in which we suspend the judgment of the other. Recognizing that as in verse 3 says, perhaps the condition is not because of someone's sin, but that through the church, the works of God might be displayed. Second, seeing the city as parish. This is the idea that the local church ought to think not just about the people sitting in these seats, but as the church, we ought to see 
the city as our parents. That God is drawing all men and women to himself. And so whether you come on Sunday or not, how does it become our role to engage the entirety of the city? And in this, we begin to see that we can celebrate the whole body of Christ, not just our denomination, but that God is big enough for different streams of faith. That Christ makes himself known in the Pentecostals in a certain way. There's something beautiful that we can see in them. Seeing the city as pale. The third is seeing the city as playground. When you're taught about the city, oftentimes we assume that it's a battlefield. It's a battleground. It's a place where God and Satan are at war. The spiritual forces Right. That, so we just that's the way we think about it. It's a place of crime and prostitution and violence. What if we begin to see the city as a playground, as a different way to see it, that there's a there's something we can engage and learn from and play that winning is not the goal, that we don't have to be in rivalry with one another. Right. I'm even wrestling with this now as I'm trying to create partnerships with uh, non-Christian groups. Right. And people, that's, that's a challenge because everyone doesn't believe like me. But can we love the city? Are there things that we can do together? We don't have to agree on everything. But are there ways to partner for the shalom of the city? Or as in Jeremiah says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. When we see it as a playground, there's no win-lose proposition. There's no zero-sum game. There's no rivalry. We get to become... People who are free. People who actually are about peace. We, in fact, do serve the Prince of Peace. So practically, what can you do? Two things that I thought about. One is start by just being vulnerable. Remember, the poor always have their problems before them. And it's really easy for us to hide. It's easy for me even to, to hide behind my education or hide behind my role. My encouragement to you is that, I mean, someone once told me that, that um, pain is actually the gateway to transformation. It's our woundedness that helps to change the way that we see things. To acknowledge our brokenness is a starting place for a transformed vision. So start by being vulnerable. The reality is, is that divorce and addiction to pornography or work. I've, I've just recently read one in six men have been sexually abused and one in four women. How much junk do we have sitting in front of us that we hide, that we have not become free from, that disallows us to engage and be people of peace? Be vulnerable. Otherwise, what Richard Rohr says happens, you transmit the wounds that you don't transform. What are the wounds that our city has transmitted? On the surface, it looks really good, but as we get under the hood, it's a little messier. Has our church, have we as people been transmitting wounds instead of transforming them? How has that played out in the city? Be vulnerable. Number two, drive through an urban neighborhood. As a starting place, but do it with new eyes. 
I used to make all my new staff do this. They had to drive through, and I'd say, tell me what you see, and they'd tell me all the bad stuff they see, and then we'd do, have a conversation, and then I'd say, well, go again, and tell me about the assets that you see. And then people would say, well, I saw lots of people walking in the neighborhood. I saw lots of older people with young people. I saw grandparents parenting. I saw uh, uh, libraries and schools, and go let the city be the classroom for you. Or as Henry, Henry Blackaby says in his book, Experiencing God, Go and attune to what the Holy Spirit is doing, and then aggressively pursue it. Be vulnerable. Come check us out at the Grand Rapids Center for Community Transformation. Come check out our coffee shop. Use our landscaping company that's putting young people to work. But attune to what the Holy Spirit is doing and aggressively pursue it. In closure, the last point, thankfully we do, are not stuck in blindness, but no a relationship with the incarnate God sets us free, allows us to see differently. So point number five is the mission of the urban church in the city is first to acknowledge the lies that we have believed about ourselves and about the city. And then we will proclaim the truth about God's intent and vision for the city. I want to end by just praying a quick blessing over you. I kind of adapted this. This is from uh, Lithicum's book. He says, Church in the city, do not give up, for the church is the only hope. Father, touch our eyes with your love so that the once blind may now see. Let us see a vision of Grand Rapids where God will make his home, where we will be his people and he will be our God. And all the tears and the pain and the racism and inequity will be wiped away. Let the entire church join in Christ's triumphal procession, which claims victory of the city's principalities and powers and systems. Church of Jesus Christ, be for our city the church you have been called to be. Amen. Thank you, Justin, for opening that up and challenging us to, to see from a practitioner's view uh, the, the city through the eyes of the gospel, and I, and I hope that you, you sense the, the hope in this. You know, this isn't like, okay, you're blowing it, do better, uh, try harder. That, that, that's not the message. The message is the, the work is finished. Christ has come to powerfully transform us as individuals uh, and the cities and the places that we live. He is redeeming and renewing all things, and we have the opportunity to, to be a part of that and illumine the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've invited a couple of members of Christ Church to, to come and, and just pray on behalf of the church this morning. So David Johnson and Emma Vanderveen are going to come. Emma and Simon are part of our church plant team, and been thinking about the city in a new way, that way. David and Sarah, you know, live and uh, in the city and are working with the ministry, working with kids. And I think both of these folks represent, uh, you know, some of the really the great ways in which God is already at work in our hearts and in our hope that as we pray, God will continue to open all of our eyes. pray. Father, um, thank you so much for bringing Dr. Bean to us this morning and 
that you've been trying to open up your word to us. I pray that um, it will just prick all of our hearts in a, in a real and deep way. Um, thank you that we're not waiting um, for the work of the cross to be done. It, it's complete, and um, thank you so much for that gift, and I think that I thank you that you give us each um, a unique role in um, in the in that um, ministry of the gospel, Lord, and that um, I just pray that you will give us eyes to see um, yeah, give us eyes to see those around us. Um, who are broken, and give us eyes to see our own brokenness, and um, give us eyes to see where your spirit is at work, and please, like Dr. Dean said, um, just help us aggressively pursue that, Lord. In your precious um, son, Jesus, in his name we pray. God, we want to thank you so much for the city, for all the things that you've created for it, for the the vibrant communities and the vast diversity that's in there. But Lord God, we know that there's been too much uh, we have to go to, to see brokenness and to see injustice that's there. And we know that there's kids that are going to go cold or sleep cold tonight because parents don't have enough money to keep electricity on. Kids that will go hungry and wait for wait for school so they can get a lunch. Lord, we pray for teenagers that life has gotten real too, real too quick. And that that, that deadline's been evaded. Lord God, we just pray that um, uh, as a church that we won't we won't be blind to these that we won't be blind to this injustice and brokenness and that and that this church can be an agent of of hope and and, and witness to the city. I pray this in your name. Amen.